Well, I hope you are inviting people to come because that is about the best music and worship you can get anywhere. And uh, I absolutely love that song. That is just a gorgeous song. And it is so true how justice and mercy kissed at the cross. I was uh, jolted this morning at 1.14 a.m. to an earthquake. Uh, I live in Lexington, South Carolina, and uh, it's one of those things when you wake up, you think, wait, was I dreaming? Because I heard a boom, and then the bed shook. And I was like, something's just not right. I had that happen a few, maybe a couple of years ago, same situation. I was in my study, and I actually have an uh, aquarium in my study, a 65-gallon aquarium. Since I can't go fishing a lot, I got, at least I can look at them. And uh, so I was sitting in there one day, and the water started sloshing back and forth. I mean, literally sloshing out of the aquarium. And I thought, what in the world is going on? I had never been in an earthquake before. And come to find out, there had been one uh, not too far from our home. And there has been, I don't know what the last tally has been in Elgin, South Carolina, which is right over near Blythewood, South Carolina. It's in the teens, I know that. And so this was another one of those. And it was a 3.4, they're saying, on the Richter scale. And uh, it shook a large portion of Columbia, Casey, and out into Lexington. So very strange strange things happening and then of course there was one in Georgia about a hundred miles from where I live and uh, so I'm not sure exactly what your eschatology is but one of the things Jesus did say is that in the latter days there would be earthquakes in various places and Pillion, South Carolina is about as various as you can get <laughs> there's not a whole lot of sane life out there anyway so we uh, had a unique service this morning at our church. We uh, ordained two men into the ministry of deacon, and it's always a great, great privilege to do that in our church. It's an opportunity to uh, teach on that subject, but it's also a recognition of men who are qualified and godly who can lead in that service. A church is always in need of good men to serve in its ministry, and any church uh, will need deacons. Deacons are so, so vitally important. So I'm going to teach on that today. If you've never heard a sermon on deacons, you're going to get one today. And if you're wondering, well, how does that apply to me? Well, I can tell you how it applies to you because deacons are to be an example to you so that you know how to live in service to the body of Christ. And so they're not given to do the service for you. They're given by God to the church to be examples of service to the church, and there are some other important items we'll, we'll discuss. So what I'd like you to do is take your Bibles and open up with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We're going to go through a passage here that is familiar to most of us if we've read the Bible at all and spent some time going through these verses. Acts chapter 6 is what many call the original birthing of deacons, that this would have been the place most likely that deacons were formulated and born as far as a formal office or service in the church. But let me read what it says, Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. I'm going to be talking about the important necessity of deacons. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, has these words to share with us today. Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, 
because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. The Bible teaches that there are two offices in the church, and these are the recognized offices of men who are ordained into ministry for the purpose of serving the church. Those two offices are elders and deacons. Elders are pastors. That's another word for pastor. In fact, the word elder comes from the Greek word presbyteros, from which we get the word Presbyterian from. Another synonym of the word pastor is the word bishop. It's used interchangeably with the office of pastor. It is the word episkopos, which we get our word episcopalian from. It means to oversee. And the other word, poimen, is usually used in a verb form, sometimes at least one time in Ephesians chapter 4. It refers to the pastoral role or the shepherding ministry of that man. Often we call them pastors, but they are elders. And elders are pastors and bishops are elders and bishops are pastors. They're all the same thing. They're used interchangeably over in the book of Acts chapter 20. And they're also used, all three of those words are used in 1 Peter chapter 5 to refer to the office of elder, pastor, or bishop. Deacons are servants of the church. In fact, the word deacon is a transliteration of the Greek word diakoneo, and that word is the word we get deacon from. It means a servant. And they are given to God's church for the purpose of serving the church and carrying out necessary ministries in the church. And both of these offices are absolutely essential for the, for the furtherance of the kingdom of God through the church. But what is often missed, and a lot of people don't know this about the ministry of the deacon, is that the office and ministry of the deacon is absolutely essential so that the office of the elder and the ministry of the pastor can be done. In other words, if you don't have the office of deacon, if you don't have deacons in your church, oftentimes a lot of the ministerial tasks, a lot of the duties that need to be done, a lot of the work needs to be done, will be taken care of by the elders and not the deacons. And so the elders are swamped and overwhelmed with all the ministerial responsibilities. And oftentimes they find themselves unable to perform in the most important priority, which is the preaching and teaching of the word of God to the assembly. God has given deacons to the church for the purpose of freeing up the elders and the pastors of the church so that they can do the work of the ministry and calling people and edifying people and teaching them the word of God so they can become more like Jesus Christ. And history, the church history at least, is full of good examples of godly men who served in the office of deacon. But if you have been in church for any length of time, you're probably aware that there have been men who have served in the office of deacon that aren't so good. 
and they've caused a number of problems in churches over the years. In fact, my first pastor was slapped full of it. I had a lot of deacon trouble. In fact, my only real trouble were, were deacons. And the reason why is because most of the deacons that I had were lost. They didn't even know the Lord himself. And so they were trying to work their way through what I was trying to tell them from the Bible, and they didn't even believe the Bible. So I can tell you firsthand that I've had very, very difficult time with deacons in the past. It's not like that now. Thank God. God has blessed me with a great group of men who love the Lord and are saved, which is a big, big thing when it comes to being a deacon. There was a rumor that once spread around that Charles Haddon Spurgeon had said that a deacon is worse than a devil for if you resist the devil, he'll flee from you, but if you resist the deacon, he'll fly up at you. Now, that was something that was rumored that Spurgeon said, but he, of course, denied it. He did say, however, that many of our ministering brethren bitterly rate the deacon. Others even tremble at the mention of their names. Some put on what they call their spiritual armor when they would go into meetings with the deacons because they believed that the deacons were the dragons of the ministerial life. So not a whole lot of good views of deacons there. But Spurgeon took a different approach. He actually firmly denied that he'd ever said anything derogatory or negative toward deacons or disparaging them because he defended them as a gift to the church. He believed that God had given them to the church and that they were a great necessity to the church and a great benefit to the pastors and the elders of the church. He said this, and I quote, The greater number of our deacons are an honor to our faith, and we may style them, as the apostle did to his brethren, that they are the glory of Christ. He went on to say, Deprive the church of her deacons, and she would be bereaved of her most valiant sons. Their loss would be like the shaking of the pillars of our spiritual house and would cause the desolation on every side. Thanks be to God, such a calamity is not likely to befall us, for the great head of the church has had mercy on her and will always raise up a succession of faithful men who will use the office well and earn unto themselves a good degree and much boldness of faith. Spurgeon could say this because he had personal experience in the pastorate. I don't know if you realize this, past, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon pastored a very small church at the very beginning of his ministry whenever he was a teenage young man, before he came to the most popular one in London. The church was in Water Beach, and Spurgeon found his deacons there to be absolutely indispensable to the work of the ministry. He was a solo bivocational pastor, and I can grant you from firsthand experience, and so can Mark, being bivocational is not easy. It's very, very difficult because you have two full-time jobs along with your family that you're trying to take care of. And Spurgeon was in that context in a very small village church where he had, at the very beginning, just a couple of dozen people. But then as he preached the Word of God, in just a few months, the church grew to over 400 people. And you ask, how in the world did he manage it? Well, he managed it because he had some godly men called deacons that helped him to do the ministry there. He said on one occasion, the deacons of my first village pastorate were in my esteem the excellent men of the earth in whom I took great delight. They were hardworking men on the weekday. They spared no toil to their Lord on the Sabbath. I loved them sincerely, and I still love them. In my opinion, they were as nearly the perfection of deacons of a country church as the kingdom could afford. They came alongside Spurgeon. They encouraged him. They helped him. They ministered with him, 
They also mentored him because he was a teenage young man at that time in his first pastorate. And on one occasion, one of the deacons rebuked him. And Charles uh, actually recounts that event. The deacon that rebuked him was Mr. King. He says this, Mr. King once gave me a kindly hint in a very delicate manner. He did not tell me that I should speak more guardedly in the pulpit, but when I left the house one morning, I found a pen in my Bible stuck through the verse, Titus 1.8. That verse said, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he may, that, <coughs> excuse me, that he that is contrary uh, may be ashamed, having no evil to say against you. He said, nothing could have been better taste than that. The wise rebuke of a well-deserved and lovingly taken deacon. He was so deftly given it, and the value of it was thereby increasingly in, increased indefinitely. Mr. King was a deacon of deacons to me at the Water Beach Church. Little did they realize that the ministry of the deacons to Charles Haddon Spurgeon would usher him into a ministry in London at the New Park Street Baptist Church where he would influence the entire world for Christ. And we still are benefiting from that great work of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. When we come to the text of Acts chapter 6, what we have is one of the most concise, precise, and very eloquently stated representations of what a deacon should be and what the office should be. So what I want to do is just go through this very simply. It's not complicated at all. It's not going to be a very difficult doctrinal statement regarding deacons, but you'll see as we work our way through it how important deacons really are. The first we would start with is in verse 1, and that is the complaint. Yes, the church had complaints early on in the New Testament. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint. Now, to understand exactly what's going on here, you need to also understand its context. And the context is, in those days, those days referred to the rapid growth of the New Testament church. Thousands were coming to Christ, not just a few, but thousands were coming to Christ newly converted, having no background in what we know today as evangelical Christianity. The New Testament had not been written then. They only had the Old Testament. So they had no idea of what even the Apostle Paul would teach because he wasn't even converted at this time. He was still Saul, and he was going to be breathing out persecutions against the church. But at the very beginning, God was visiting the church, and he was saving thousands of people. In Acts chapter 2, in verse 41... At the end of the preaching of Peter, it says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So it went from 120 to 3,120 in one sermon. That's a pretty good sermon, I would think. Really, most importantly is the Holy Spirit was using the sermon. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, it says, They were praising God, that is, the church was praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Not only was there the large group of people saved at the very beginning, but now every single day God was adding to the church people that were being saved. By the time we get to chapter 4 of the book of Acts, in verse 4 it says, However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men that came were 5,000. That's only counting the men. It's not counting the women and the children that may have been saved during that time. 
So it's not a small amount of people that were being converted. I mean, there were literally thousands of people coming to Christ. It went from a very small congregation in an upper room praying for the Holy Spirit to come, and now you're dealing with a large mega church that's huge. And not only that, you've got a couple other problems going on. You have groups of people there that have different languages. If you remember in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, whenever they came in for Passover season, they were coming from all over, and they had different languages, and God had to use the miraculous gift of languages to speak the gospel to them so they could hear the truth and be saved. So this group that was already beginning in the book of Acts was a saved group of people, and there was a large group of people being saved. But another thing that was happening is this church of thousands were sacrificial. Chapter 2, verse 44 again says, Now all who believed were together and had all in common, and they sold their possessions and their goods and divided them among all as anyone who had a need. So they were willing to sell everything they had and give it to the ones who had need, whoever they were, whether it was land or houses or possessions. They wanted to make sure that they were loving one another as Christ had loved them, and sacrificially they were giving to one another. In Acts chapter 4, verse 33, it says, And with great power... The apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were in possessions of land and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed it to each one who had need. You can't ask for any more sacrifice than this. Basically, if you were to put it in the modern-day contemporary culture we live in, you would be willing to sell your house your car, whatever you had to meet the needs of someone else. That's what they were doing. They were giving it all up. They were kingdom-minded, heavenly-minded, and they were willing to sacrifice it all to make sure that their brothers in Christ and their sisters had what they needed. Well, because they were saved and sacrificial, they were leading themselves right into suffering. It didn't take long before the church was already persecuted, and because they were preaching the Christ and the gospel, the high priest and the Jewish leaders were rising up to stop them. They were doing everything they could to persecute them and to cause them trouble so they would keep their mouths shut. And in Acts chapter 5 and verse 17, it says, Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which were of the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them into the common prison. And then in chapter 5, verse 40, it says, And they agreed with them, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should speak no longer in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Well, you think that would be it? It would be all over with? They wouldn't say anything else? No. They went right back, right back out of the jail and started preaching again. So in verse 41 it says, So they departed from the presence of the council. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer the shame for his name. And then it says, And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease to teach and preach that Jesus was the Christ. So they were a saved people, and they were a sacrificial people, but they were also a suffering people. But the other thing I want to point out this morning is that they were a serving people. And what I mean by that is, even before we get to chapter 6, and there's already thousands of people that are saved, and there's needs that are arising in the church, there was no need at that point for a deacon or a servant that is recognized or appointed and the reason why is because the church was serving itself. These thousands of people were meeting the needs of one another, and they were reaching out to each other and serving one another. 
They were doing exactly what the Lord had called them to do and commanded them to do, and they were serving one another. But, as is the case with any congregation or in any church, and you have a lot of people, you're going to have some problems that are going to rise up, and there happened to be one of those. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said on one occasion, when he was talking to a young man about going into the ministry, and he asked, you know, he was asked by a young man, I would like to have a whole lot of people in my ministry, in my congregation, and Charles told him, he said, you know what, you don't want to have any more than you want to be accountable for. And the more people you have in ministry, the more problems you have in ministry. Because people bring problems. Don't you agree with that? Any of y'all have any problems? <laughs> All of us do. And this is what happens here in this context. There's a lot of people, and it says in verse 6, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenist. What in the world's going on? Well, the word complaint is a word that means to grumble or to murmur. It's the Greek word, gonguzmos. That's one of those onomatopoeic terms that sounds like what it is meaning, and, and grumbling or grum, 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 that's God's guzmos. That's the idea. And so you're grumbling under, you know, your voice. As one lexicon said, it means to talk behind the scenes. So there's some complaining going on, or another way of saying it, they're whining. And they're whining because there's a need that's not being met. And it's important to note that this need was a real need. It wasn't made up. It tells us in the text that they were complaining because the Hebrews were neglecting the Hellenist because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution of food. Now, what was happening here is the Hellenists were being neglected. Well, who are they? Well, they're actually Greek-speaking Jews. If you remember way back, whenever the Babylonian captivity occurred and the Jews were taken away into Babylonia, the, the kingdom of Judah was taken away and kept captive there. Finally, when that captivity was over, a lot of the Jews did not come back, and they ended up kind of uh, dispersing among the nations and they learned a lot of the Greek culture and the Greek language. Generations have gone by now, and some of them have had children, and they have raised their children under the Greek culture and with the Greek language. And so they come into Jerusalem every year for Passover. They don't know the Hebrew language. They don't speak Aramaic. They speak Greek. So they're the Greek-speaking Jews. They come in, and some can't understand them. They can't speak Greek, and they don't read Greek, and they don't know it, so they're not familiar with it. So a lot of that is creating a problem of communication in the church. I bring that up because I don't believe a lot of what was going on there was intentional. Because you'll notice in verse uh, 1 and verse 2, there is no rebuke given by the apostles. There's no confrontation of a sin of partiality or even being stingy or selfish or self-centered. None of that's there. It's just a statement of the fact that they were complaining because they were being neglected or, as one translation says, overlooked. And that's probably a better rendering of what the word means. Not so much that they were intentionally being neglected because they just didn't like them. It was an idea that they were overlooked. It is an administerial overlook. They'd gotten missed. There was communication that had fallen down. And so these widows that legitimately needed food were not being given their food and so they rose up and said, you know, you Hebrews, y'all need to get your act together because you're missing out in, help, in helping our widows and you're not taking care of them. And I'm sure they probably could have read into that, that there would have been some partiality or even some kind of uh, racial problem because they looked down 
on the Hellenists as lower class citizens because they were intermingled into the Greek culture and brought that in even to Jerusalem. But you need to understand also that the Jews would not have desired to miss the widows. They would not have wanted to neglect the widows. They were indoctrinated in a very clear way that they needed to take care of the widows. This is indeed the heart of God. I don't know if you realize this, but the Bible is very clear about this, that God desires that you and I as a church take care of our widows. You do not neglect them at all. Early on in Deuteronomy chapter 24, it said this, whenever you reap your harvest of your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, don't go back and get it, for it'll be for the stranger and the fatherless and the widow. He says the same thing about the olive trees. Whenever you beat the olives, don't go back and get the rest of that. Leave it for the strangers and the fatherless and the widows. And whenever you gather your grapes from your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. In other words, if there's other grapes left on it, you leave them there for the stranger, for the fatherless and the widow. This was understood that you leave what is left over for the fatherless and the widows and the strangers. In Deuteronomy 26, whenever they gave their third year tithe to the uh, Levite priesthood, they were also to give to the stranger and the fatherless and the widows so that they could be filled, that is, that they would have food. Isaiah 117 says that uh, you are to learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, and plead for the widow. Ezekiel 22, verse 6 and 7, talks about how Israel was guilty of bloodshed because they had not taken care of the stranger and the widow. And even in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 5, it says, And I will come near you for judgment, God says, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. You remember that? In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you devour widows' houses. Do you realize that 1 Timothy chapter 5 in the New Testament, the majority of that entire chapter is dedicated to the taking care of the widows in the church? I think God cares about the widows. And also you have this statement in James chapter 1 verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows. Uh, people think, well, I'm going to be a very, very dedicated worshiper in the church. I'm going to make sure I'm there. I'm going to light my candle. I'm going to read my Bible, and I'm going to pray. And the Bible says if you want to be committed to pure religion that's undefiled in God's eyes, you take care of the orphans and you take care of the widows. That's very practical for all of us to understand. So the Jews would have never thought, hey, let's not take care of the Hellenist widows. Let's not do that at all. They understand that it was crucial to God. They were obligated to do so. And they would have done it. So no doubt this was probably just one of those ministerial oversights. They missed it. And now they're going to be dealing with it and how to solve the problem, which was very important, in fact. And they did work on solving the problem. Let's move a little further now and look at the rest of some of the text here. It says they neglected the daily distribution, verse 1. Now the New American Standard reads this way, that they overlooked the daily serving of food. So this was... um, a New Testament meals on wheels. I mean, they were delivering food to the widows that had need. And you need to understand, unlike our culture, where a lot of times the government sends you a check and gives you food stamps and all of that, in those days, the women were usually, they were, 
They were raised in their father's home. They didn't leave the father's home until they were married. Then they spent their time in their husband's home. And if the husband died, they couldn't go out and get a career. They didn't have a job to go to. So they were literally left destitute in need of someone to help them. And so that's why they needed daily distribution of food for the widows. They didn't have some um, IRA, IRA stuffed somewhere where they could pull some money from. Nothing was like that. They were poor. And when a husband died, it was devastating to the woman because all of her income that she could have had, support she did have, was taken away. So that's the complaint. But let's look at the concern now that's raised in chapter 6, verse 2. It says, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So the complaint is they need to get their food delivered. The concern is the apostles say, we can't do it. If we do it, we're going to leave the teaching and preaching of the word of God. It's not desirable, which is another word for acceptable or fitting. It's not proper for us to leave the teaching and the preaching of the word of God in prayer to serve tables. Now, it's not saying that they were of higher class and that they were the untouchables and they would never put themselves in such a low position to serve tables food that's not what it's saying it's not teaching us that these men were not humble and not willing to serve no they would be willing to serve but they knew that there was a priority in the ministry of the early church and the precedent needed to be set by the way the word serve here in this text is the word diakoneo that's where we get our word deacon from this is the verb form of it and it's used many times throughout the new testament to refer to service but also you need to just take note of the word tables too, to serve tables. The word tables had the idea of being a table that you could eat at or a counter you could eat at, but often it was used of money changing. That table was used of the tables in the temple where the money changers were, and they would exchange the monies that people came in from different currencies, and they would give them the money for the temple tax. So no doubt, clearly what is in mind here is not only the service of food and the taking care of the basic necessities of life, but because as a servant, you are going to handle money that would exchange hands for the purpose of purchasing the food or getting the food there, whatever it took, all of that was involved in it. But notice again the text. The apostles say, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God to serve these tables. Do you realize in the ministry there's a hundred things you could do that are good? There are all kinds of ministries that are beneficial to the body of Christ, but the most important thing is, is that we not forsake the priorities for all the things that are good. We could do a lot of stuff, no doubt. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that there are priorities in ministry and in any church that must not be forsaken. They can't be sacrificed for any reason whatsoever. And nothing could be so far removed from the biblical pattern than to make preaching or teaching the word of God a secondary thing in the church, which is what has happened in today a lot in, in ministry. We uh, had a couple visit with our church this morning. Most of our people that come to our church drive at least 50 minutes to get there because they're coming from all over around Columbia. We had a couple visit with us again from uh, Aiken, South Carolina, which they said their drive was about 50 minutes. 
and said they had looked and looked for a church in Aiken and could not find one, and that most of what they found were 20-minute, 15-minute little sermonettes that had no value whatsoever, no exposition, no teaching of the Scripture. And this is becoming more common than uncommon. In fact, if you were to listen to most people who go to a church, they would think that the sermon is just not that big of a deal. That you, as long as you have an hour's worth of praise music and you get everybody all hyped up in the music, and then finally you've got the last 30 minutes left, that's what you do with that. And who cares if it's really that great or whatever. You just have to get through it. And so as a result, pastors are told today that you need to shorten the sermon. You need to make it more upbeat. You need to make sure it's more practical. Don't deal with the doctrinal issues or the heavy things. And by all means, don't talk about sin or hell. That offends everybody and they won't come back. Well, that, what that means is you can't read the Bible in church, right? The point is, is that the primary means that God has chosen to minister to his church and to sanctify the body of Christ is through the preaching and teaching ministry of the church that is actually bathed in prayer. Whenever we sacrifice that for any reason, even the delivery of food to the widows, we have sacrificed one of the primary means that God has given to his church to make his church more like Christ. And you don't want to do that. The New Testament church understood that. They were persistent in the pattern given in the book of Acts that they were going to give themselves over continually to the apostles' doctrine and prayer. They constantly did that. John MacArthur said this, and I quote, Many in the ministry today have left the emphasis on prayer and the word of God. They are so involved in the administrative details of their church that they have little time left for the intercession for the saints and the study of the Bible. Yet pastors are given to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service of God, to the building up of the body of Christ. Their calling is to mature the saints so that they can do the work of the ministry. By neglecting that calling, they doom their congregations to languish in spiritual infancy. Programs are no substitute for the power of God and His Word. Those whom God has called to the ministry of prayer and the Word must make it a priority. It has to be a priority. Any church that is not making it a priority is not a church. It's not a church, no matter what it calls itself. The Bible's extraordinarily clear on this. And the other thing I would add to that is that prayer has to permeate all of it because it wasn't just the preaching of the Word. It was prayer and the Word. I mean, the preaching has to be saturated in prayer. When someone who's preparing a message to preach, they're praying all the time. They're interacting with God. They're listening to God and what he says in his word and saying, Lord, please help me understand this. Help me understand it in such a way so that I can give it to your people and they can benefit from the word of God. It should always be saturated that way. And if a pastor is going to do that, if he's really going to do it with precision, and if he's really going to do it with excellence, you have to be completely devoted and completely committed to it. In fact, there was a young man that came one time to hear the gifted expositor, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, and he was amazed at his ability to teach the Bible and to communicate the text. And he came up to him afterward and said, I would give the world if I would be able to teach the Bible like you. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse looked him straight in the eye and said, good, because that's exactly what it will cost you, is the world. The difference between any man who exposits the scripture well and one who doesn't 
is whether he's willing to give himself totally and completely to it, to teach it and to preach it, to study it and saturate it in prayer. And that's exactly where the New Testament church was. That's what they gave as a priority. You remember it said in chapter 2, verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Timothy was told by Paul in his first letter, till I come, give attention to the reading of the text, exhortation and doctrine. Basically, that's a definition of expository preaching. He says you are to read the text, explain the text, and apply the text. That's what you do. That's your job description. That's what you're called to do. 1 Timothy 4.16, take heed to yourselves and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing so you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So what would be the most important thing a pastor could do in any local church? Preach the word. Preach the doctrine. Why? You save yourself and those who hear you. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor especially those who labor and the word labor means to labor to the point of exhaustion in the word and doctrine second timothy 4 1 says as paul concludes his letter to timothy his last letter he wrote i charge you therefore before god the lord jesus christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom preach the word not your opinion not some news article not something you think is relevant Preach the word of God. In fact, the only, thing that see, the only thing that feeds your soul is the word of God, period. That's it. In the little book of Titus, Paul said the same thing to Titus. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. That was his commitment. So we see the complaint. Now we saw the concern that they don't want to leave the word of God to serve tables. What's their conclusion? How are they going to handle it? Look at verse 3. It says, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. There it is again, the repeat for emphasis, no doubt. But notice what it says. The solution to this problem was to actually appoint men who could take care of serving the food to the widows. By the way, I think it's important to note that that right there is the only responsibility they have at this point, that is to administer and deliver food to the widows, and that those men who would be appointed to do that had to be men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. In other words, you're not looking for the guy who has the best skill and talent set to deliver food. Hey, he's got a great truck, and he delivers food for Schwann's. I mean, why not get him to do it? Or that guy works for UPS. He knows how to deliver a package. Get him. No, that wasn't the point. It wasn't whether he was talented or gifted or had a job that matched. The issue was, is he a godly man? Because we want the godly men to represent the church when they show up to deliver the food to the widows. And not only that, whenever they are doing that, they're becoming a representation of what it is to serve in a godly way to the body of Christ. You don't get the guy, the first guy that shows up who has the ability to administer because he has a certain skill set that way. And so they understood the importance of it, and that's exactly what the apostles point out here, that these men were to be given to that who were of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. There's a couple of benefits to them doing this, appointing these men over it. First of all, it kept the priority of prayer in the Word as a priority. It kept the priority the priority. That's what it did. Secondly, 
It enabled the apostles to be devoted and not distracted. I grant you, being in the ministry as long as I have been, and David, and I'm sure Mark too, you're studying along and you're working very hard in the text, and you have someone give you a call and say, Pastor, you know what? My grandmama yesterday, her toe had a hangnail, and it really is tough for her to get through that. You're like, excuse me? You know, come on. Don't distract me with the non-essentials, the things that don't really matter. Back up a little bit. Think about what's important. That happens often in ministry. One of the things I don't do is I don't keep an office at the church because if I did, I never would get anything done. Well-intentioned people would come by and just chit-chat and sit around and talk. I had that years ago. I had a good friend of mine, and he showed up in my office one Sunday or one uh, weekday, and I was trying my best to get ready for Sunday. And like Chuck Swindoll said, Sunday comes every three days, so you better get your act together and study hard. And so there I am trying to get myself ready for Sunday, and a good friend of mine just shows up. And I said, what you doing here? He said, I ain't got nothing to do, so I thought I'd hang out with you. I, and I thought to myself, I have nothing to do. You know, I'm obviously I'm a pastor, right? Like David says, you know, rev, R-E-V, reverend, means rest, eat, and visit. That's all they do. Oh, no, not, not quite. No, no, no. I grant you there's a need not to be distracted, and there's a need to make sure you commit yourself to it. So they knew, look, we can't have the widows coming in here and asking us for the food. We need to get the men to do it so we're not distracted. A third thing is it allows others in the church to do the ministry that's needed. You actually employ, if you will use that word in a general way, you employ people in your church to do ministry so that they do the work of the ministry. And number four, it keeps the apostles and elders and pastors from being overly worked and stressed by the cares and the needs of the church, particularly the physical cares and needs of the church, which are very important, but I grant you they can create a great deal of stress among the elders in the church if they don't have help doing it. This is not something new in Acts 6. This is not a new pattern or a new development. This was something that was taught in the book of Exodus. You remember back when Moses had taken the people of Israel out of Egypt, and there were over a million people, they believed, that came out of Egypt. So there was a lot of people there, and Moses was trying to handle all the problems of all the people. And he was getting really worked up and anxious over the whole thing. His father-in-law comes in and gives him some advice in Exodus chapter 20 and tells him, Moses, if you keep doing this, you're going to find yourself in trouble. This is a bad thing. You need to take some of these men, it even talks about that these men need to be men who fear God, who are not covetous men, men who are able to uh, be men of truth, he says. And you take those men and they become rulers over thousands and rulers over hundreds and rulers over fifties. You take that million plus people and you chop them up in small segments and you put someone over each one of those segments and whenever there's something very important, it can come to Moses but most of them can just be taken care of by you guys because you are men of truth and you can handle it and you can take care of it. So that's exactly what we find in Exodus and that's a good example of that. You look back at verse 3 and I want to show you something else about that. Well, the apostle says, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you. Now, we don't want to miss this because this is also important that the, the people of the church were to be involved in seeking out the deacons in the church now they're not the ones that appoint them but clearly they participate in seeking them out and the idea of that is this you look among yourselves and you see those men that you believe are qualified and can serve in the office of deacon and then you come to the apostles and you say guys 
this man over here is a qualified man. He could serve in that office. I recommend that you consider him to be a deacon in this church. And then they evaluate him, check him out, test him, as it says in 1 Timothy 3, and then he can be ordained into the office of a deacon. And that's exactly what you have, the participation of the congregation. Now, in our church, we don't have a formal way of doing that, like a list given to the church, and then they circle one or vote for one or anything like that. What we do is we just simply listen to our congregation. And they come to us many times, in fact. Most of the deacons I have there today were recommendations of people in the church saying, this man here would really do well as a deacon. Would you consider that? And we do. And then we go through the whole process of ordination as we did even this morning. Now, that's not always the way it has been in the churches I've been in. And I'm sure Dave has dealt with the same thing. I mean, there are churches out there that do really weird things when it comes to ordination of deacons and selections of them. Like, for instance, whenever I was uh, pastoring my first pastor and I told you I had some very severe deacon issues there, what they would do is this, is that they would have a list of men in the church. They were men who were on the active role and the inactive role. And what that meant is, is that if you were active, at least you came twice a month, maybe once. If you were inactive, they didn't even know where you were. You could be in another country or you could be dead. And so the inactive role was you didn't come to church at all. But your name was put on that to be voted on because you were a member. You were still a member. So you could literally vote someone into the office of deacon that never even came to the church. You say, nah, that doesn't happen. It did happen. In fact, we had a man that did not come to church. And I was told by the deacons, if we vote him in and make him the chairman of deacons, he'll come. That's not the reason why you make a man a deacon. If he's not faithful to begin with, he should never be considered. That was the reason why that church split and the reason why I lost my pastorate, because I actually was trying to keep it straight and to at least get us to vote on the men who showed up. At least that. But, you know, you're to seek out from among you, and that would be the church that is faithful. And I would add one more thing to that. It needs to be also membership. It needs to be membership. Membership does matter. I know today in our culture they think it doesn't matter anymore, but it does matter. Because whenever it comes to a formal membership in a local assembly, what that means is this. Not that you're joining a club so you get stamps every month so you can purchase something. That's not the point. The idea of membership is, is that, number one, you are willing to have an interview with the elders of that local body and give your statement of faith that you are a Christian. We listen to your testimony. We, we find out if you are a true believer or not based upon your confession and what you do believe and your, your coming to Christ. But also it tells us if you're willing to be a member that you're going to be willing to submit yourself to the local authority in that church which happens to be that body of elders. Third, it tells us that you're willing also to put yourself in a place of accountability which is discipline in the local assembly. But today you have this real shallow, wishy-washy, jello idea that you can just come to church and just be in a church and never join a church and become a member. I mean, we've lost the importance of that. And there are biblical examples of that. I mean, whenever the church came together, they knew who the church was. And whenever an elder shepherded his flock, he knew who the flock was. They had names. It wasn't just this general, untouchable, unknowable, unboundless group of people. 
that he didn't have any understanding of. So you needed to be members. If you were going to be considered to be part of those that would be deacons, you need to make sure you're saved, you're willing to be under the elders' authority, and also you need to be willing to be accountable through church discipline. So that's important. There's another thing about this that I think you need to note about the qualifications and the requirements of these here listed in verse 3. They not only were to seek out from among them seven men, and by the way, the seven men is not a not a perfect number in the sense that you always got to have seven. You're like, oh gosh, we got to have seven men. We don't have seven men. Let's ordain some that aren't qualified and make it seven. No, that's not it. They had seven men, believe it or not. They had seven men because that's all they needed. They just needed seven men to do it. Now, later on, as the church grew, I'm sure there were more deacons that were ordained. And as any church is, they ordained the deacons as according to need in the local assembly. But notice this, they not only were to be taken from among themselves, the believing community, but this is going to be a real shocker today, in our culture especially, they were to be men. Men. And what I, be, what I mean by men, just to be clear, is that they're male, all right? They're male. Our culture doesn't even know what a woman is, and since they don't know what a woman is, they don't know what a man is. So it's a total disaster as far as that is concerned. And the churches are beginning to adopt some of this nonsense. The SBC just recently started talking about we need to redefine and really work on what the definition of a pastor is. Really? Since when do we have to finally figure out what a pastor is 2,000 years later? The Bible's very clear what a pastor is. One of the things that a pastor is, he is a man. I know that offends so many people today. We're not saying that women don't have a role in the church. Women have a role in the church, just like they have a role in the family. I mean, a woman can be a mother. A man can't be a mother. That's the way it works. A woman can be a wife. A man can't be a wife. And the vice versa. I mean, the woman can't be the husband, can't be the father. It just doesn't work that way biologically and logically and biblically. It doesn't work. And when you come to the church, this redefining of male leadership in the church, I'm going to tell you this, it's going to destroy any denomination that adopts that procedure. Every denomination, no matter which one it is, no matter what title it has, every time they've gone down this path, they've ended up into rank liberalism. And it destroys the church. It destroys it. But here in this text, it says that men, you appoint, you select from among you seven men you say well how do we know that's not a general term for men because the greek word that is used in this text is the word aner and it simply means a man a male as opposed to a female it's the same word used over in first timothy three twelve. This translated husbands same word in fact in chapter 3 verse 12 of first timothy it says let the deacons be the husbands of one wife and the literal rendering of that text is, is that they are to be a one-woman man. It's not talking about marital status. It's talking about devotion to the wife that you have. You see, you can be married all your life for 50 years and be looking at every other woman going down the street. Or you can be properly and even biblically divorced or become a widow and be remarried and still be able to be qualified to serve in the office of a deacon the point is is that there needs to be an understanding is that man a one woman man 
That's what the text is referring to. The other thing that they need to be is not only uh, sought out from among you and also men, but they need to be of good reputation. That means inside the church and outside the church. And that sounds pretty self-explanatory. The idea is that they need to be favorably affirmed. Uh, they shouldn't be the man that comes to church and prays and reads the Bible and then leaves here and starts cussing at everybody in his workplace. That's not the kind of man you want. You want a man of integrity, a man who has a good reputation inside the church and outside the church. It is interesting, the Greek word translated here for reputation is the word martureo, which is a word we get witness from. You hear the word martyr in that. It has the idea in this particular form to speak well of or to commend or to have respect for. The point was is that there should be a witness of you being a man of integrity, a man of good reputation. That's the idea. And then also, not only is he to be of good reputation, it tells us he should be a man full of the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean he has to speak in tongues, as some would teach. All that simply means is he's literally controlled by and yielded to the Holy Spirit. Another way of saying that, according to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, that if you are full of the Holy Spirit, you are full of the Word of God. The Word of Christ dwells in you richly. So whenever you're having the Word of God dwell in you richly, you have the Holy Spirit also dwelling in you richly. So that man is a man of the Word. He's a man who is devoted to and yielded to the Spirit of God. But another important thing is given to the text, the fifth requirement, he should be a man who has wisdom. Wisdom. That's a lost word today, isn't it? And what wisdom simply is this. It doesn't mean that he has a theological degree. It doesn't mean he has all of his ducks in a row, theologically speaking, although that's important that he does. But most importantly, the idea of this is, is that he not only has biblical understanding and he has an understanding of biblical truth, but he has the ability to apply it to life. He can take what he knows from Scripture and apply it to a situation that's wisdom. You have a verse like this in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. It says, The men understood the times with the knowledge of what Israel should do. In other words, that's wisdom. And today, you need men who have wisdom in this culture that we're navigating as churches, no doubt. And I told you also, there's another point that needs to be made here, is that some say that this chapter is not really a chapter that we can get deacons from. Because there's never a time whenever these men are, quote, called deacons specifically. And you don't have the office of deacon specifically stated. Uh, but there's a problem with that. And the problem is, is that there needs to be an understanding of what the book of Acts is really about. The book of Acts is a transitional book. It's like the book of Genesis. When we go back to Genesis 1 through 3, we don't say that's normative for everyday life, that God's creating animals every day and he's creating man every day. That's not a normative experience. That was a one-time event that occurred at a particular time. Basically, if you could say it like this, to get things rolling. When you get to the book of Acts, it's the same thing. There are things that are happening here that have never happened before. I mean, you have the church now that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have the apostles that have been appointed by Jesus. You have the institution of the church that will not be conquered by the devil or the gates of hell. And now you're beginning to see in its infancy its leadership being established. 
because the apostles will eventually appoint elders for the churches. And then as we move forward in the book of Acts, there's going to be a need for servants, and this is going to find itself in Acts chapter 6. And we're going to see here the infancy of deacons, the beginning formation of the office of deacon. We're going to see, if you will, the DNA of the deacon here in this text, the reason for them, the requirement for them, and the whole illustration of appointing them. So just because it doesn't say office of deacon, and just because it doesn't say that Stephen was a deacon, doesn't mean that we cannot glean from this the principles that are taught in the rest of the New Testament regarding the office of deacon. And so I believe this is probably one of the most important texts in all of the Bible regarding the deacons because we learn right here what he's to be about. And again, look at verse 3 again. It says that these seven men should be these men who are a good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we, that is the apostles, may appoint over this business. Now the word appoint here is the word we would get our word ordained from because it is the same word used over in Titus 1.5 when it says the deacons are to be, rather, excuse me, it says the elders are to be appointed. Paul says to Titus, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order those things which are lacking and appoint elders in every city. That is the same idea as ordaining. We know it's ordaining because he goes on and tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that those same elders you are to lay hands on in an ordination process. He warns about laying hands on them suddenly. In other words, not looking at them, examining them, watching them, making sure they have their doctrine and their life correct. Don't lay hands on a man suddenly in ordination. Then in Acts chapter 6, verse 6, you not only have the word appoint used there, but you also have the laying on of hands. Look at verse 6. That they were set before the apostles, and when they prayed, they laid hands on them. Why would they do that? Because they were appointing them and ordaining them in a public ministry that was to be recognized as servants of the church. And as I told you in verse 4, it repeats the reason why. You don't want to miss this. It says that they were to do this so that the apostles would give themselves continually to prayer in the ministry of the word. That's the reason why I named that, this particular sermon, the important necessity of deacons, because deacons are essential for a local assembly. There are men here in this church that could become deacons. And Mark's going to need those deacons in this church to help him in the ministry role here in this church. And you need to be considering that, what role you could actually play as far as in the church. Don't just come and sit and listen and learn, but also get involved, and maybe you might be one of those men that God could use in this church to become a deacon and to be used that way. Well, we find not only the conclusion of the matter, but also the choosing. In verse 5, they chose some men. It says in verse 5, the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. We know Stephen. Stephen was the one who was eventually martyred, right? He preached the word of God. And as a result of that, the gospel was propelled outside of Jerusalem because of Stephen. He was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, we know, he has a prominent role in the book of Acts. He actually preached the gospel to the Samaritans in chapter 8. He took the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8, verse 26. He also had four daughters that prophesied. Philip was mightily used of God, even as a servant to the church. 
We don't know a whole lot about the five remaining uh, men that are mentioned here. Uh, Prochorus, by church tradition, says that he had some association with the Apostle John, and others say that he also became the bishop of Nicomedia, and also was later martyred in Antioch. Nicholas probably gets the, the worst of the light of the men because some of the early church fathers associate him with the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, but, which was a false doctrine that had permeated the early church. But there literally is no evidence of that whatsoever. There's none. Uh, all you're doing is getting guilt by association because his word, his name happens to be Nicholas. So they say, well, he's obviously the guy that started the, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. That would be pretty bad if you got hammered because your name matched up with some criminal, right? There's no evidence of that at all. So they were set in verse 6, they were set before the apostles, and what did they do when they prayed? They laid hands on them. They ordained them into the role of deacon. They made them official servants of the church, recognized by the body of Christ to be doing that crucial and very important role of delivering food to the widows. And these men were qualified to do that. And what was the consequence? Well, it is very important to note that too. Look at verse 7. It says, the whole point is, as a result of them ordaining these men, as a result of them making sure that the apostles had their priority right and they were able to give themselves continually to prayer and the word of God, now comes the consequence in verse 7. Then the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And even a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So God honored the setting of the priorities in the New Testament church. I mean, the apostles could have done the work. They could have delivered the food. They only needed seven men to deliver the food. They had 12 apostles. They could have dallied up, you know, maybe seven of those guys. said, you guys go do it. But they knew that that was not the priority. The priority was the preaching and teaching of the word. So they ordained seven other men to do that ministry, to take the food, so that they could be devoted to the word of God and the preaching and teaching of God's word. And it says, as a result, the word of God spread. You see, that's why God set it up that way. Deacons are important. They're not important just because they carry out a function in the church of mowing the grass or delivering the food or taking care of the Lord's Supper and getting it set up. All of those things are important and essential, but their ministry primarily is to free up the elders so they can do their ministry. They exist so the elders can do their ministry. Without them, the elders are going to find themselves overwhelmed with some important things in the church, but not the priority of the church. And the church will be ineffective. It will be distracted. It will not be able to get the word of God out the way it should get out. I mean, if you've noticed in all the ministries that we are familiar with that have been effective, every one of them, without exception, have men within that ministry that are devoted to the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. They're devoted to it. I remember whenever John MacArthur came to Grace Community Church out in California in 1969, one of the things he said at the very beginning is this, he wanted to teach the Bible and he knew he had to teach it three times a week, Wednesday and Sunday morning and Sunday night. And so he knew right out the gate that he had to give the majority of his time to study and preparation. So he told the other men there, somebody else is going to have to do all the other stuff. And you look at that ministry today. 
what God's done there. It's because they understood the priority. They understood the priority of the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. And that's such a beautiful thing, isn't it? The church today needs this kind of organization. It needs this kind of commitment. It needs these kind of men to serve in the office of deacon so that the elders can also do their work that God's called them to do. Going back in conclusion to Spurgeon just for a moment, when he first came to his second church and his last church, which was the New Park Street Chapel, he came there in December 1853. The church was in serious decline. The previous pastor had moved the congregation to a very bad part of town. The church had been through several successive short pastorates, which is always devastating to any church. Now there was only a few dozen people gathered there at that cavernous hall, that massive auditorium. One of the deacons there that day wrote to the Baptist Association of Spurgeon's time and said this, that he reports no growth in membership and was asking for their prayers. They were dying. Among those deacons was a man by the name of William Olney, Olney and also James Lowe. These, these men, these deacons, were committed to hold the fort in the troublesome times. They served, they shepherded, they cared, they watched after, they prayed for, they ministered to the people there when they didn't even have a pastor. And in his providence, Olney actually heard that there was a boy preacher out of Cambridge who was causing a lot of stir. He actually invited this young man to come to the pulpit for supply. He invited him, he says, despite his youthfulness and his countryfied manners. It was because of this deacon inviting Charles Haddon Spurgeon at his very young years that that church was transformed and exploded with growth and affected the entire world. A deacon's important. He was willing to wait on God, get the right man, and God used him. Amen? Let's pray together as we close this time together. Father, we do thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the office of deacon. Thank you for these men who serve faithfully. We ask you, Lord God, that you would raise up men here at Rock Hill at Grace Covenant. Lord, we pray that you would use this church mightily for your kingdom, that this would become a lighthouse here in this community of truth, proclaimed and preached and taught, and that it would be undergirded by the powerful and supportive and faithful ministry of deacons. I pray, Father, for that today here. In Jesus' name, amen. Hymn number 201, stand together. There is a Redeemer this scene. <clears throat> There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your spirit till the work on earth 
is done. Jesus, my Redeemer, name above all names, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, hope for sinners slain. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. When I stand in glory, I will see his face. There I'll serve my King forever in that holy place. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. Amen. Thank you for the word, Pastor Swan, on deacons. That was uh, wonderful encouragement. Amen. Amen. Our benediction today will be Jude. Jude, I'll read verses 24 and 25. Uh, it was a blessing to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and blessing to worship with you all today. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again uh, real soon. So Jude 24 and 25 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Have a blessed week. We'll see you next time.